Welcome to the Jane Hotel. My name is Cheryl Woodruff. I am the Senior Director of Operations at the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. It is my great pleasure to uh, welcome you to our program tonight. Uh, for those who don't know about us, the Greenwich Village Society works to preserve the architect architectural heritage and cultural history of Greenwich Village, the East Village, and NoHo. Our, even, our uh, lecture this evening is put together by our Brokers Partnership, and you'll see some folks around with name tags. Uh, the Brokers Partnership is a group of downtown real estate brokers who got together to do something uh, for the Greenwich Village Society. They work to put on cultural events such as these, educational events for brokers, as well as uh, uh, generate interest in what the society does. So it uh, is um, my job tonight to say thank you to them for putting this together, as well as my staff member, uh, fellow staff member, Dana Schultz, who uh, also did a lot of coordination for this event. And it is my great pleasure to welcome Tom Cooper. Tom is, I need to read this, hold on. Tom is uh, a member of the partnership, and he's also Senior Vice President at Corcoran Real Estate. Uh, this event was his idea, so we wouldn't be here without him. So please join me in welcoming Tom Cooper. Thank you, Cheryl, and thank you, everyone, for coming. I'd like to thank fellow members of the Brokers Partnership, especially um, Vals Osborne, um, Rebecca Daniels, and Marlene Hartstein, who have worked so hard over a long period of time to help pull this together. Next month, it will be 100 years since the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. That much we all know, but it's the what-ifs, and it's the what really happened that brings us here tonight. It's very fitting to be in this particular room, in this particular building, rather, because although this room didn't look like this in 1912, this building was just four years old when the Titanic sank, and it was designed um, in the... Uh, Excuse me, I had right here how it was designed. It was the American, it was the American Seamen's Friends Society Sailors Home and Institute um, built for the purpose of helping indigent sailors, sailors for recreation, sailors um, on leave, having recreation, etc. Um, this was intended when it was built a century and so ago as a home for these uh, indigent sailors, an alternative to some of the waterfront dives and boarding houses that were all in this area. Um, they were in this area, of course, because we had a very bustling port at the time. Now, when this building was built, the New York Times called the Institute the largest of its kind in the world. This remained the Siemens Institute for many years, and in 1944, the, YW, the YMCA took it over. In the late in the 1980s and 1990s, this was home to, for a lot of rock and roll venues and for Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which some of you may recall. And I think it's fitting, as I look at Melanie Reese standing there um, of the Jane Hotel, to whom we owe a great debt of gratitude for this evening. I think it's very fitting to acknowledge that a century after the building was built, it became the Jane Hotel. The Jane Hotel, which reimagined this space, 
which may be one of the most you know, cutting-edge places in Manhattan, but obviously with um, a faithful nod to the past. Thank you. Tonight's speakers are Charlie Haas and Jack Eaton, gentlemen, who are co-founders of the Titanic International Society, a nonprofit organization founded to preserve and perpetuate the memory and history of the Titanic and those who sailed on its maiden and last voyage. Charlie Haas is president of the Titanic International Society. He's a retired teacher of English and journalism and has made two dives to the Titanic in 1993 and in 1996. And he's participated in another expedition to the wreck in 1998. He narrated the program Titanic, Untold Stories, and with Jack Eaton has written five books of, on the Titanic, including Titanic Triumph and Tragedy and Titanic Destination Disaster, both of which are for sale conveniently this evening. Um, and, sign, and they will be signed. Yes, don't want to forget that. Now, Jack Eaton is a histori uh, the historian for the Titanic International Society, and he also participated in the 1993 dive um, to the ship. Yeah. And he's been, in, he's been a historical consultant to many other dives, including those in 96 and 98. He's a retired officer of Roosevelt Hospital here in New York and has appeared in many television programs about the Titanic. We're honored to have both gentlemen here with us this evening to share with us their knowledge of the Titanic now just one month prior to it, the centennial of its sinking. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Charlie Haas and Jack Eaton. Good evening, everyone. Uh, nice to see you all. We are very, very pleased to be here and very honored to be here as well. Uh, as was indicated, uh, my partner here lived in Greenwich Village for many, many years. How many years was that? Uh, about uh, 50, approximately 50. So uh, he's a village man. <laughs> I escaped to New Jersey very quickly, so uh, don't hold that against me. We, oh, I heard a boo over there. Um, we, um, we have had some amazing experiences with Titanic, and we hope that in the next hour or so, we can maybe uh, give you some new knowledge, uh, especially in terms of the Greenwich Village and also, the, uh, to some degree, the New York City connections to uh, Titanic. Now, Jack has the button pusher. We always have to decide who's doing what. The uh, White Star Line, the uh, company that owned the Titanic, uh, began its transatlantic uh, voyages in 1870. Uh, for the first uh, year or two, uh, it docked over at Pavonia, New Jersey, and the passengers were ferried across the river to Chambers Street, where they uh, officially ended their crossing. Uh, it was not too long before uh, the White Star Line uh, did acquire a pier at the foot of West 10th Street, and uh, not too long after that, they uh, occupied the north side of the Christopher Street Pier, uh, sharing it with the uh, New Jersey ferry boat. 
let's see, that was at uh, Pier 52. Now, in 1888, the North River Piers were renumbered so that uh, 52 at the foot of West 10th Street became uh, 48 and uh, 44, I'm sorry, and the uh, one at Christopher Street became 45. Uh, By 1888, um, the uh, piers for White Star had expanded to the foot of West 11th Street and Pier 49 at the foot of Bank Street. However, around the turn of the century, larger ships were coming. This is the Oceanic of uh, 1899. Is that the Baltic? I thought the next one was the Baltic. It's all right. You changed them. Okay. The Baltic at 24,000 tons, and you can see it almost uh, fills the uh, pier. As a matter of fact, it mops over a little bit. Uh, This uh, situation went on until uh, about 1909 when the Chelsea piers were completed. Chelsea piers to the north. The... uh area, as, as has been uh, indicated to you, was very, very heavily involved with the maritime trade. And in fact, there were many uh, hotels in this general area that catered to seamen who were coming ashore from their ships. Uh, among these um, uh, locations, we have the Glen Island Hotel, which was located at 92 Cortland Street. We had the Hotel Holland, which is still standing today. It's at West Street and West 10th. There, there was a Keller's Hotel at 385 West Street. And all of these offered uh, relatively clean um, accommodations as opposed to the, the dives, the waterfront dives that, that seamen could also uh, patronize if they wished. Um, one uh, beacon of hope, actually, was this building. And this is a, an actual advertisement for this building from about 1909 or 1910. And as you can see, uh, it it advertises that there are actually different room rates depending on what your rating was. In other words, the average seaman paid only a quarter a night, and there were larger rooms at 50 cents per night for the officers, uh, and those included shower baths. Uh, You'll notice also that uh, there were facilities here for billiards, a bowling alley, shower baths, a swimming pool, uh, banking facilities, and an assembly hall for concerts, which I suspect may very well have been this room right here. Uh, Chapel services every evening. So uh, this really was a a kind of a um, a super-duper deal for uh, most seamen coming into the port of New York. And this is the way the building looked roughly after, uh, very shortly after its uh, construction had been completed. Uh, the uh, piers for the White Star Line that uh, ran along the Greenwich Village waterfront were uh, for the stevedores who worked on the docks and also the men who coaled the liners and the uh, freighters that uh, docked at the piers. Uh, their homes were in the village uh, area and uh, just uh, along Christopher Street, and uh, there, of course, were saloons to take care of them. This is one at 11th Street and uh, Hudson. Uh, They also uh, 
Well, we skipped by our little grocery store, still in existence at Christopher Street and uh, Bleecker. Um, they uh, also, uh, these men and their families occupied the Trinity tenements along Hudson Street. Uh, now, what do we have here? Do you take this one? I think I do. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Ah, hot dog. Um, it became very quickly apparent that the peers, the original peers to which Jack has already referred, were very quickly going to be outgrown. Uh, the Lusitania and the Mauritania were coming into service in the first years of the 20th century, and the peers that you've already seen just didn't hack it. They were way too short. The Lusitania comes in at 700 feet long, and the piers you've seen were roughly five and a half, 550 feet long. So uh, the city of New York embarks on a major building program, probably one of the largest public construction projects the city has ever seen. And during the, the course of uh, about a five-year period, they built an entire uh, complex of waterfront piers, which are even today known as the Chelsea Piers. Now... <clears throat> Here we see the Lusitania in a photograph taken in September 1907. The Lusitania at this point was the fastest ship in the world, and you'll notice that it is docking at the new Chelsea Pier, or at least part of it. You can see that the pier platform on the left has been built, but the final pier structures still remain to be constructed. So eager was Cunard and all the steamship companies to use these piers that they actually started using them before they were totally completed. Uh, here we see the pier sheds under construction. If you look very carefully, you can actually see the word Cunard on that pier, and you can see the extent of this development. It literally stretched from, uh, let's see, 12th Street up to 22nd Street, 10, 10 city blocks. An amazing, uh, amazing uh, concept, really. All right. Um, eventually, the piers were finished. We're looking north now on West Street, and you can see the beautiful uh, limestone and granite uh, facade that has been uh, constructed, and you see several uh, pretty good-sized ships uh, already docked there. Now, uh, we have one more historic photo. This is the Lusitania which is moored at the northern side of Pier 54. The Cunard Line had, I think, three piers here. The White Star Line had three. The Compagnie Générale Transatlantique had at least one. There was also another pier that was kind of shared by several different steamship companies. Uh, it was from this pier, Pier 54, that the Lusitania sailed on its final voyage on May 1, 1915, before being torpedoed in the Irish Sea. And, of course, it is the same pier to which Carpathia comes with Titanic's survivors in 1912. Now, as long as these piers were, and they were uh, more than 800 feet long, they were not long enough because already the White Star Line had announced plans for vessels that would eclipse even the Lusitania and the Mauritania. To give you some idea, the Lucy measures 710 feet long, the Olympic, the Titanic, and a projected third sister ship were going to be 882 feet long. The White Star Line had a real concern about this problem because what it meant was that the last 70 to 80 feet of these new ships 
would actually be jutting out into the Hudson River with nothing to protect it from river traffic. It was a dangerous situation. And I suppose it could also be argued that these, these sterns hanging out into the Hudson could also serve as a great big traffic obstruction. So they wanted, uh, almost immediately after these piers were finished, the White Star Line wanted to extend them. Unfortunately, they ran into a major problem. The city of New York fully supported the expansion of these piers. Local businessmen were behind the effort. They didn't want business to go elsewhere. The problem was that our Secretary of War at the time controlled what could or could not go out into the Hudson River, and he adamantly refused to allow a permanent extension of the Chelsea Piers. He felt that it would create a traffic bottleneck in the Hudson, and he just would not approve any kind of a pier extension. At one point, the White Star Line actually threatened to move the docking point of the Olympic class of ships out to Montauk Point, 120 miles east of here. And their plan was that they would take people off the ships at Montauk, put them on a train, and eventually, I guess maybe in several weeks' time, no, they would, uh, they would end up in Manhattan, maybe. Um, so this was a real problem. And even, even despite that fact, the Secretary of War would not be moved. However, they did come to a temporary compromise, and temporary it was. They actually built an extension at the end of the pier, a temporary extension. That's what it was officially called. And part of the design requirement was that the river be allowed to flow through this structure for reasons known only to the Secretary of War. But we can actually see the Olympic, this is Olympic, arriving on its maiden voyage in October of uh, 19, uh, in June, rather, of 1911. And um, these temporary extensions still really didn't solve the problem because now we see Olympic docked at the pier and you can see that it's still not totally protected at the stern. Because the Secretary of War would not approve permanent adjustments to this thing, eventually the, pa the piers are forced to move northward again to a wider spot in the river up in the West 40s. And that essentially relegates the Chelsea piers to kind of second place in terms of dealing with shipping uh, major passenger ships. The Queen Mary, the Queen Elizabeth, all those giant ships had to dock basically up at Midtown because of one man's stubbornness. Okay, Jack, you're uh, speaking of stubborn. <laughs> uh, the Olympic had been in uh, service for about 10 months when her sister ship, Titanic, which had been under construction after its launch in May of 1911, uh, the Titanic, one fine April morning, set out from its berth at Southampton and uh, sailed over to Cherbourg, France, picked up a few passengers, sailed on to Queenstown, uh, picked up a few more passengers, and then set out on its official maiden voyage across the North Atlantic. Uh, Everything went very well until uh, Sunday, April the 14th, at 11.40 p.m., 
the Titanic, uh, the iceberg was had every natural reason to be where it was. Titanic did not. And uh, the result was a collision uh, two hours and 40 minutes later. Uh, the ship sank with a loss of uh, more than 1,500 lives. Uh, this is one of the uh, Titanic's uh, uh, telegraph operators. This is Harold Bride in the uh, Marconi, the wireless room of the Titanic. And uh, this was not, of course, uh, during the uh, night of April 14th, 15th. But it, it is an authentic photograph, and here is this young man sending and receiving messages of a routine business nature. And uh, the, after, following the collision, there was, uh, of course, they sent out the first, uh, the uh, first message they sent out was uh, CQD, which was attention, all stations, and then uh, a little while after that, they sent out an SOS, which had just recently been approved for uh, wireless uh, uh, ships in danger. Uh, this message was received fairly close to the village, Wanamaker's, over on uh, around 12th Street and uh, 11th Street and Broadway had a uh, wireless uh, communication with its store in Philadelphia. That was the reason why they had a wireless uh, system. And um, the uh, signal uh, that uh, Harold Bride was sending out, John uh, Phillips, the other operator, was uh, were received at this station by a young man who subsequently uh, worked his way up to become chairman of the board of the RCA Corporation. David, David Sarnoff was on duty the night that the Titanic danger signals were received. This was David Sarnoff's uh, stairway to stardom, I guess, right? That's where it began. Uh, now, uh, the uh, Sarnoff, uh, through a bunch of messengers, uh, saw to it that the newspapers in New York were uh, supplied with details that he was receiving uh, at his station above Wanamaker's. And uh, the newspapers uh, shown here, a newspaper row uh, down near City Hall, the World, the uh, Tribune, and the New York Times. Uh, they all uh, gathered their reporters together uh, the Times uh, actually, uh, allegedly, that is, this is a photograph of them on the night of April 15th. Uh, it's just a little too carefully posed, but this is pretty much what it must have looked like uh, at the time uh, in the offices of the New York Times while they were assembling their uh, various uh, special editions describing the uh, events that were going on on if, the high seas. If you look at this photograph, why would everybody be staring at the camera while a major story is breaking? You, if you've ever been in a city room, you know that that's just not possible. And how convenient is it that the clock is showing exactly 10.30 p.m., which is the exact moment that Titanic's distress signals would have arrived here in New York? It's, uh, it's a little bit too, too, uh, too, too. Uh-oh. Jack has broken the remote control. 
Uh, I'll put the parts on in a minute. Hopefully the batteries will stay in place. <laughs> now, the New York Times did not want to – you did that very well. Um, the New York Times obviously could not cover what was happening on the waterfront from its offices uh, over on Park Row, which is on the other side of the island, basically. So this building over here on the left uh, was actually hired. Uh, this is the Strand Hotel, at least it was then. Today I think it's called the Liberty Inn. And the New York Times – oh, I heard a rumor there. Uh, the New York Times actually uh, rented out the entire top floor, sent a whole bunch of their reporters over there, and there were four telephone lines that connected this building to the Times' main office. Now, remember, in 1912, telephones were still not very common. Just the fact that they were able to get four lines put in place practically immediately was remarkable. Now, by way of orientation, the pier to which Carpathia is coming would be directly behind that building. You see the pilings for Pier 56 uh, directly ahead of us, and then it goes on from there. So this is really the Times' um, uh, waterfront headquarters, if you will, uh, during the course of the uh, arrival of the uh, Carpathia. Um, the New York Times, the first New York Times edition was a little bit on the tentative side. Uh, they report new liner Titanic hits an iceberg, sinking by the bow at midnight, women put off in lifeboats, last wireless at 12.27 a.m., blurred. The Times had a managing editor named Carr Van Anda, who was the newsman's newsman, if you will. He was an exceptional reporter, and he was really, really good at sniffing out news and, and even taking a little bit of a leap of faith. When the Titanic's radio signal stopped, he made the guess that the ship had sunk. And as a result, the next morning, the Times' edition showed that the Titanic had sunk, but it was really based on guesswork on his part. And, of course, the Times' coverage of the disaster, even today, is considered to be uh, among the best. The sinking of the Titanic is really among the very first events that get covered in depth by a, a, a journalism uh, profession that is still very brand new. The Times' coverage is very good. Unfortunately, sometimes it is matched by William Randolph Hearst's yellow journalism. You'll notice that John Jacob Astor is actually rendered above 1,500 people dying. Um, uh, the, uh, the Hearst papers, however, even though they tend to be very exaggerated in some of their coverage, they were among the only papers to cover the saga of Titanic's third class. So they are important from that standpoint. Uh, because of these newspaper reports on the morning of the 15th, uh, especially, crowds began to descend to the White Star Line offices at Number 9 Broadway. This picture apparently is taken early in the morning. We see that there's a young person with his back to us, probably stopping on his way to school. There's one mounted police officer. The limo, we're guessing, probably belonged to Philip Franklin, the vice president of the White Star Line. But very, very quickly, these crowds grew to the point where they completely filled Bowling Green Park and then some. Uh, Jack, if you'll hold this, be very careful. Don't let the batteries out. <laughs> the White Star offices are right there. 
and we'll show you what it looks like today, later. Now, this is the mayor of New York City in 1912, uh, Mayor Gaynor, and uh, the police commissioner, uh, Rhinelander Waldo. And uh, they made, uh, between them, uh, plotted the uh, arrangements to receive the uh, 710 or 713 Titanic survivors uh, at, uh, that they knew were coming in aboard the Carpathia. This called for a great deal of police organization, and uh, the plans were uh, under the direction of uh, Ch uh, Chief of Detectives George McCluskey. Now, uh, with the anticipated uh, literally thousands of people who were expected, uh, the uh, police commissioner also had to make arrangements for a, an anti-pickpocket squad, uh, which uh, was organized and spread throughout the area around the pier under the command of a uh, lieutenant, uh, Charles Becker. Uh, less than three months later, Charles Becker was to make his own headlines uh, during the uh, murder investigation he uh, was engaged in against the gambler. Herman Rosenthal, by golly, the Becker-Rosenthal murders of 1912. Uh, the uh, police had cordoned off an area around uh, Pier 54, uh, the uh, series of ropes dotted with green lanterns were around the in front of the pier on 75 uh, feet for either side. Vehicular traffic westbound on 15th Street, eastbound on 13th Street. And pedestrians were no, uh, barred from uh, 14th Street west of 8th Avenue. And uh, the police barriers at 15th and 16th were along 10th and 11th Avenues. It was pretty difficult for a curiosity seeker to get in there. Uh, this shows a very few, very small part of the crowd which was close to the uh, pier preceding Carpathia's arrival. On the night of April 18th, 1912, in the midst of a thunderstorm, the Carpathia arrives at the uh, Battery, Lower Manhattan. Uh, all customs and immigration regulations have been suspended. Titanic's people are among the very, very few to enter this country not going through Ellis Island once it had opened. Uh, the Carpathia sails very slowly up the river. It is totally surrounded by all kinds of watercraft, many of which have been chartered by the various newspapers to uh, try to get the story from the people shouting up questions to them on the deck of the ship. Uh, there was a crowd estimated somewhere between ten and 20,000 people lining the waterfront that night. To everyone's surprise, the Carpathia sails north of Pier 54 up to Pier 59, which was Titanic's intended destination, and there the Carpathia drops into the waters of the Hudson 13 Titanic lifeboats, the only portion of Titanic ever to reach the New World. We have attempted, and here we see them the next morning, uh, overnight, souvenir hunters had descended on these boats, apparently armed with screwdrivers and who knows what else, 
and they basically picked the boats clean. The boats, the boats had uh, white star line flags on them. They had lifeboat numbers. They had the words SS Titanic and Liverpool on them, and uh, they were really hard hit. I, I guess souvenir hunters, uh, we are even aware of a piece of rope that was cut from the side of one of the boats. So to prevent further pillaging, the boats are hauled up to the second floor, the loft level of Pier 59. We have tried over the years to, to trace their whereabouts since then and have basically come up with a, a kind of a stone wall. We know that they were towed to a boatyard over in Brooklyn. That boatyard did a, an inventory of each boat for the limitation of liability hearings that were going to be held here in New York City. Uh, that's where most of them disappear. There is an apocryphal story that one of the boats was turned into a, um, a duck blind uh, for a private hunting club on the north shore of Long Island. There's another story that said that there was a, a uh, bar in the Greenpoint section of Brooklyn that incorporated one of these lifeboats in its decor. Uh, and when the Gowanus Expressway was built, the bar was destroyed and so was the boat. But other than those two stories, we have no idea where they went. We don't think that they were installed on any other ship because they were rather badly banged up in being hauled onto and, and off the Carpathia then up and down in terms of the loft at Pier 59. So the, uh, if any of you have any Titanic lifeboats in your backyard, <laughs> please let us know. Five. Uh, this this is uh, not as silly as it sounds. Uh, there there is a very famous piece of a lifeboat floating around, uh, not literally floating, but traveling from one exhibit to another in New Jersey, and uh, we have had to uh, put the. Uh, stop cease and desist order on this uh, twice within the last 10 years. It is not a Titanic lifeboat. Uh, however, the, uh, the, the mystery of the Titanic and the aura make people believe with just enough uh, little urging from the entrepreneur that this is a Titanic lifeboat. Don't believe it. Caveat emptor. Absolutely. <clears throat> Carpathia then returns to its own spot on the northern side of Pier 54. This was taken on the morning of April 19th. <clears throat> if you look very carefully, you can see the American flag on her forward mast is still flying at half-mast. Uh, the Carpathia was very hastily reprovisioned. It had, after all, been on a journey to the Mediterranean, uh, so they had to restock the coal, restock its food, and I think it was on the 20th of April the Carpathia resumes its uh, interrupted voyage. <clears throat> now, Titanic's passengers were all allowed to leave, and you'll hear some stories about where they went in just a moment. Um, they exited Pier 54 at the landward side of that pier. Unfortunately, Titanic's crew were not so lucky. They were being held more or less under house arrest, if you will, and instead of leaving Pier 54, they were taken to the river end of Pier 54, and down a back stairway, they were put on board the deck of a, an immigration vessel called the George Star. The George Star then took these men and women up to Pier 61, where the uh, SS Lapland was docked. 
and the Lapland essentially becomes uh, a kind of a floating hotel slash uh, detention center for Titanic's crew. The problem was, from White Star's standpoint, they didn't want the crew speaking with the press. Things were bad enough as it was. And also, there were vague rumblings of an official investigation into the disaster, and so they didn't want the men wandering off. And uh, so that was one reason why they were kept on board. While we were researching the newest edition of our book, we came across a fascinating little tidbit, which really caused us to smile. We knew that there were detectives guarding the Lapland, preventing the um, press from getting on board. We know that at least one reporter somehow managed to get rid of the detectives long enough to go on board the Lapland and do an interview with Titanic's people. Uh, that is relatively new. But what's also kind of fun, we found out that the men, I don't think the women would do this in 1912, but the men eluded their guards and decided to go to waterfront saloons where basically they would tell the story of their rescue in exchange for a free pint at the, at the front counter. We had never known this before. We had always thought that they were you know, just totally locked up. So this is a kind of a refreshing uh, aspect. New York was offering warm hospitality in the form of liquid refreshment to Titanic's surviving crew. Jack. There... Uh was, of course, uh, up until fairly recently, a hospital in Greenwich Village to which a large number of passengers and injured crewmen were removed. Uh, This shows the courtyard outside of the emergency ward, and uh, this is the ward, uh, one of the wards itself. Here is St. Vincent's uh, in 1912, the uh, entrance to the accident ward is just uh, at the juncture of the dark and light buildings there on the right. Uh, Once again, the uh, ambulance and the emergency uh, deliveries were made there. Uh, The Titanic's chief surgeon, uh, Dr. William Francis Norman O'Loughlin, was a well-known figure at St. Vincent's Hospital over the years, he had accompanied many White Star Line uh, crewmen who had been injured while uh, on duty. Uh, we'll get back to Dr. O'Loughlin in just a little while. But uh, here are uh, two members of Titanic's crew who were uh, admitted to the hospital. Uh, John Thompson, a stoker on the right side, and Thomas Whitley, a, uh, a, a steward. He is uh, on the right side. Just as a little footnote, Thomas Whitley uh, was a bit of an adventurer after uh, he uh, quit the White Star Line at New York. He migrated to California where he became uh, a sort of an uh, actor in a lot of, uh, he appears in, uh, not my name, but in background of uh, many of the early Hollywood uh, motion pictures. The, the records indicate, by the way, that St. Vincent's treated 117 people uh, from from the Titanic at that time. Uh, there was also a, uh, a marriage that took place uh, at St. At Vincent's. Uh, the 
young lady on the left uh, was married to uh, the young man in the middle, and the one on the right is uh, was her maid of honor. Susan Roth is the name of the... That's uh, Sarah Roth. Sarah Roth. <laughs> Watch so it. Susan. Sarah. Sarah Roth is the uh, uh, bridesmaid. Uh, her uh, gown was donated by uh, the one of the women's committees that were uh, involved in furnishing clothes to the survivors. Uh, the uh, Daniel Isles uh, was not a Titanic survivor, but he had come over uh, a few weeks uh, prior to this uh, in order to get a position so that he would be able to get married. The uh, wedding did occur at the hospital in a hospital room. The corridors outside were crowded with uh, onlookers and uh, well-wishers. Among whom were many Titanic survivors. Yes, indeed. Uh, Anyway, just for the record, uh, Emily Badman is the matron of honor there, the bridesmaid uh, on on the right. Uh, on the uh, 19th, Friday the 19th, the, here were a whole bunch of, uh, uh, of uh, destitute British seamen. That's what their title was, a DBE, uh, in, in the official reports. And uh, they were milling around. By this time, under detective surveillance, they were permitted to uh, leave the decks of the Lapland and at least walk around in front of the pier. They still had nothing to do. They were milling around. The detectives still tried to keep the uh, newspaper reporters from uh, approaching them too closely. Uh, so the, these men had uh, just sheer boredom with nothing to do. There was a uh, the Siemens Friends Institute did make arrangements to have these men... Uh, Come down to the uh, to to this uh, mission, and around three o'clock in the afternoon of the 18th, they began drifting down in pairs. Some of them alone, some in small groups, and they walked down from uh, 21st Street down here to Jane Street, where they went in to the hotel, and there. Here we are. This is the interior of this hotel where we are tonight. We uh, we haven't had a chance to really look about yet. We've been here once or twice before, but were uh, prior to its uh, uh, refurbishment, we were here twice while it was in the throes of being uh, modified. So we never really did have a chance to get inside to see the hotel. The men were here for two or three hours. They had a clothing distribution, so many of them had no clothing, no uh, uh, toilet kit or anything like that. They left the ship under emergent conditions. The merchants of New York were kind enough to put these things together for them, and uh, it was here that uh, the distribution was made. And then uh, the, there were refreshments and a prayer service 
which it is reported these hard-bitten British seamen did engage in rather wholeheartedly. They were very grateful for having survived and perhaps even more grateful that a New York City had welcomed them uh, in. Uh, following the clothing distribution, uh, we, we always refer to this as the class picture. Uh, this was taken uh, right outside on the steps that you all came up uh, to be here tonight. And uh, many of these men, uh, over the years, we have been able to identify, uh, I would estimate about uh, a fifth to a third of them by name. So this shows uh, the men outside the hotel just before they wandered singly, in pairs, in small groups, back up to the Lapland. There was now a problem. Senator Smith wanted to detain Titanic's crew for his official investigation. The Lapland was supposed to sail for Britain. How do we, how do we solve that problem? The answer is another white star ship called the Celtic, which docked at Pier 60. And as a result of that, the men were transferred from the Lapland to the Celtic. Those who were not subpoenaed remained on the Lapland and eventually were uh, the next day, were actually sent home, finally. Um, so the, the guys, the, the crew, really, were, were basically almost doing like musical chairs here in New York. Now, New York City has many connections to Titanic's people, and just by way of numbers for you, there were 140 people journeying to New York, in other words, as their ultimate destination. There were 74 people who actually lived here in the city, only one was born, and no, I don't know who it is offhand. And there are 12 Titanic people actually buried within the city limits. The Titanic's uh, New York passengers were uh, just a perfect cross-section of, of uh, society in general. Uh, to, to pinpoint a couple, these are some of the first-class passengers on board. Irene Harris in the upper row was the wife of theater empresario Henry Harris, Harris was one of the most successful uh, theatrical producers in New York. When he was lost in the disaster, uh, Irene Harris took over and became the first female theater empresario to have any success, and she did a really good job of it. Uh, in the lower row, uh, Henry Frauenthal was a, a very noted orthopedic surgeon here in New York City. Madeline Astor and her husband, John Jacob Astor, uh, I, we don't really need to explain too much about them. Uh, John Jacob Astor was probably the wealthiest person on board the Titanic. He was 51 years old. Madeline Astor, his second wife, was 18. She was with child. They uh, went, and believe me, when John Jacob Astor divorced his first wife, Ava, it was a scandal of monumental proportions. And, and that's really, and Jack says it still is, uh, and, um, and that's why they went to Europe. They went to Europe to escape the calumny of all the, the gossiping going on in New York City. Eventually, it was decided that Madeline needed American medical care for their unborn child, and that explains why they got on the Titanic, to bring Madeline home to give birth. Uh, and the, the child Madeline was carrying, I think, was born in that summer, August, I think it was, and it was Vincent, um, 
John Jacob Astor the fifth, I think it was. And um, anyway, uh, so uh, we also have Dorothy Gibson. Dorothy Gibson was a movie actress. Uh, she filmed many of her movies over in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and uh, she actually becomes the star of one of the very first Titanic movies. Jack says the first, which was out by May 14th. So it was a lickety split special. The name of the movie was called Saved from the Titanic, and Dorothy Gibson actually appears in the, the clothing that she wore into the lifeboat uh, that night. And uh, unfortunately, there are only a couple of stills left of this movie. The rest of the movie disintegrated because it was filmed on the old-fashioned nitrate film. Uh, Dorothy. Uh, second class, uh, lots and lots of people. Just to pick two of them here, Lawrence Beasley uh, was a school teacher from uh, Britain. Uh, he uh, survived the disaster and wrote what is still considered to be one of the very best accounts of what happened that night. Clear, lucid, unemotional, superb writing. Uh, and it must be genetic because Lawrence Beasley's grandson is Nicholas Wade, who currently is a writer for the New York Times. Um, Samuel Ward Stanton, a very well-known American artist and illustrator, had been overseas uh, visiting the Alhambra in Spain. He was looking for design ideas that he could incorporate on the Hudson River Day Line's new uh, excursion vessel, the Washington Irving. And, and uh, both, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Stanton was lost in the disaster, and his drawings went with him, I suppose. Third class, of course, we have amazing stories here. These are all people coming to America to create a new life for themselves. Again, that we could talk for hours about them. Just to pick one at random, uh, Eugene Daly became a lifelong resident of New York City. As Titanic had left Queenstown, Ireland, Mr. Daly had stood on the stern of the ship and had saluted his departing homeland with Aaron's lament on his bagpipes. When the uh, uh, court cases were filed against the White Star Line, he filed a claim for the bagpipes that had gone down with the ship. And uh, during the voyage, he was serenading the third-class passengers with his pipes. So uh, that's uh, Eugene Daly, who became a New Yorker. Well, this august fellow, Jack is smiling, this is that illustrious Senator William Alden Smith. And Senator Smith was very, very eager to get to the bottom of this entire Titanic disaster. Uh, as has been indicated to you, he rounded up six or eight of his colleagues in the Senate, and they basically decided that a full-scale investigation by the Senate Committee on Commerce Subcommittee on the Sinking of the Titanic would begin here in New York City. And uh, they chose as their venue the old Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which, as you may know, is now occupied by something called the Empire State Building. But uh, in those days, uh, that's where they held the hearings. And the, the exact place for the hearings was in these windows right there on the uh, basically the second floor. Uh, it was the hottest ticket in town, and uh, when the uh, hearings convened in the Myrtle Room, uh, the first day everything was so jammed that they, they just couldn't function, so they then moved to the East Room of the Waldorf Astoria, which was a little bit bigger. And here we see, uh, with his hand to his chin, Bruce Ismay, the managing director of the White Star Line, 
answering the first of probably several thousand questions, not only about the Titanic, but about his own personal behavior because he had gotten into a lifeboat uh, as it was descending from the ship. And a lot of people were saying he had no right to save himself while there were passengers still on board. If you're sensing a very slight echo in the the Costa Concordia disaster, yeah, okay. So uh, Ismay is testifying. Now, as we mentioned, the lap plan departs. This is an actual, although fuzzy, picture. Again, notice the flag at half-staff. This is the lap plan leaving with Titanic's crew on board. The hearings are getting underway, and suddenly it is discovered that five people who should have been subpoenaed somehow managed to escape Senator Smith's clutches. So he dispatches his friendly uh, personal friend, uh, Joe Bayless, to go out on the uh, tug, R.J. Barrett. And the Barrett goes all the way out and catches the Lapland out of quarantine off of Staten Island. Those five wayward Titanic crew are rounded up and hustled back to shore to their huge disappointment. At this point, Senator Smith decides that New York City, wonderful as it is, is not going to be adequate for what he has in mind, an inquiry that is literally going to last weeks of time. They were renting the uh, Waldorf Astoria Hotel for big dollars in those days. It would uh, make a lot more sense if they could adjourn to Senator Smith's turf down in Washington, D.C., And so on Sunday, the 21st, I think it is, of April, uh, the men are taken over to Penn Station and are are basically sent down to Washington, D.C. on two separate trains. And during their time in New York City, uh, so far as we know, the men had a very, very limited orbit of where they were allowed to be. You see the major New York City sites where the, the crew were allowed to be, Pier 54, where Carpathia had landed, Pier 61, where the Lapland was, Penn Station, the Waldorf, St. Vincent's, and this building, the Siemens Friend. And that's as far as most of them got. Okay, Jack, I think you're up next. New York took uh, a great deal of trouble to gather money for and uh, benefit performances uh, for the... Most many of the third class passengers who were destitute here are three of the venues where there were Titanic benefits. Uh, George M. Cohen, the uh, Broadway uh, actor and producer, sold special copies of the New York American at the polo grounds of the 22nd, I believe it was. Uh, the Metropolitan Opera on April 29th gave a benefit performance uh, at which uh, the great tenor Enrico Caruso uh, was one of the uh, stars who uh, sang there. Uh, Yes, that is the midway at Luna Park in Coney Island. They did have a Titanic show. But it was two years later. It was in 1914, And very faintly, you can see the uh, lettering outside of the uh, performance, which was really very, very bad, very poorly received, and uh, it only lasted uh, possibly because this was two years later, but also possibly because it simply wasn't any good. Uh, It closed very quickly. 
Uh, however, it did leave behind one fantastic souvenir, and that is this wonderful poster, which is quite large. Uh, this is from the, uh, it's in the possession of the Peabody Museum up in Massachusetts. We're going to show you some of the sites associated with Titanic as they looked in 1912 and as they are today. Um, we've been given the high sign that we need to get out of your way, so we'll speed this up. Uh, this is the Siemens Church Institute over on the east side of Manhattan. Notice the lighthouse at the top. That was dedicated in, on the first anniversary of the disaster. The Siemens Church Institute was, a, a, if you will, a sister organization to this uh, uh, edifice here. And uh, the lighthouse still exists today. It is at the entrance to the South Street Seaport Museum, the Titanic Memorial Lighthouse. And uh, as many as 30 years ago, they were hoping to get the time ball on the top of that back in service. Still hasn't happened. Keep our fingers crossed. This building, of course, uh, it has a, a nice role to play. We see it as it is today, a wonderful hotel. Uh, after a very, very uh, checkered past, it has come back in, in a, a marvelous way, adding so much vibrancy to the neighborhood. Jack, do you want to do this one? Uh, this is the White Star uh, New York headquarters in April 1912, and it shows the uh, crowd of uh, uh, people uh, clamoring to get in the offices to find out what has happened to their friends and relatives. This is the same building. It exists today. It is now used for quite uh, different commercial purposes. A radio shack. All right. Uh, Pier 54, we've talked about the Lusitania departing on its final trip from Pier 54. Uh, by 1991, Pier 54 was having some major, major problems. It was literally disintegrating. There had been a fire in the 1930s that had caused it to be rebuilt, but now even that rebuilding was in jeopardy. Uh, the interior of the pier was a shambles. Uh, it was just literally coming down around people's ears. So what has happened to it now, of course, all that is left is the archway at the landward side of Pier 54. And if you are very lucky on a rainy day or if the light hits this archway just right, you can still see the words Cunard White Star Line on the front. Um, hopefully this will be the only leftover of Pier 54. Today it is used as a staging ground for concerts and and bluegrass and that kind of stuff in the summertime. Uh, this spectacular view of the Chelsea Piers uh, was taken in 1907, I think we decided. 1912, I'm sorry, September of 1912. We actually figured that out. But in any event, this was the high point of those piers. Uh, today, of course, the piers are being used for other things. Uh, if you're aware, they are still called the Chelsea Piers. They're now used for recreational purposes. You can see a, a golf course. Uh, those of you who are Law and Order fans know that on one of these piers, uh, Law and Order was actually filmed during its uh, series. Uh, Titanic is remembered in many memorials. Uh, Jack? You uh, remember we mentioned Dr. O'Loughlin, uh, who uh, was well-known and well-loved at St. Vincent's Hospital. He was lost in the sinking, and uh, the staff of the hospital uh, took up uh, contributions to this wonderful bronze plaque, which uh, 
as long as the hospital stands, uh, this is near the emergency room at the former St. Vincent's. We are very frightened about the future of this plaque. We don't know where it's where it's headed. Go ahead, John. Uh, there, uh, W. T. Stead was a, uh, a philosopher and an editor and a magazine writer in uh, England. His uh, plaque is up on the uh, wall at Central Park at Ninety Sixth Street. Uh, this uh, is at uh, the Grace Church, uh, Episcopal Church, 12th Street and Broadway, uh, Edith Evans, who was a passenger aboard the Titanic and gave up her seat to another woman who had family at home. She's remembered by this graceful plaque uh, at the uh, church. the uh, wireless operators, uh, this, the first two names on the first name one, first one name. name is John Phillips who was lost in the uh, sinking he was the other telegraphist uh, the John Jacob Astor John Jacob Astor is buried in uh, a Trinity uh, Cemetery uh, up in the northern part of uh, Manhattan uh, up there also at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine you can actually see J- Jack push that button so we get a nice little circle Titanic in stained glass. Uh, the Astor family uh, donated the funds for this memorial window. There is an inscription to Astor directly under it. I'm sorry to say that right now you really can't see the Titanic because they've installed a gigantic fluorescent light fixture directly over it. So um, enjoy it while you can. Go ahead, John. Ida and Isidore Strauss were uh, very active in New York uh, charities. Uh, their memorial is still is uh, very much in existence. It's recently been refurbished, and I understand it's going to be rededicated during the uh, centennial uh, observances. It was dedicated in 1913, 15. Mm. Dedicated originally in 1915. Uh, oh, I thought I said 106th Street and Broadway. Uh, and uh, the uh, f- figure uh, is there, and it's a very, very beautiful uh, thing. The uh, uh, employees at Macy's, which uh, Isidore Strauss, of which he was one of the founders, uh, contributed to this uh, wonderful plaque, which was for many years at the 34th Street entrance uh, to the store. Uh, the Strauss's mausoleum, only Mr. Strauss's body was recovered. Ida, uh, on Ida's, unfortunately, was not. But uh, Isidore is buried up at Woodlawn Cemetery. In the Bronx. In the Bronx. Uh, this is a beautiful plaque. Unfortunately, you will never see it. This is the musician's plaque that was uh, dedicated by the Musicians' uh, Union. And uh, during the refurbishment of their building and probably combined with the World War II scrap drive, uh, this plaque, uh, uh, many years after the disaster, this plaque has disappeared. Uh, I've been in touch with the local 802. They regretfully announced that it is no longer, uh, uh, they, they no longer have any idea where it is. We think of Titanic today in many different ways. 
For some people, Titanic is a metaphor for failure, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. But for many people also, Titanic is a wonderful evocation of all that is good about human beings, the selflessness of, of so many people who gave up their seats in the lifeboats uh, that night, uh, the legacy of safety regulations. When the Costa Concordia ran into disaster back in January, isn't it remarkable to think that on a ship with more than 4,000 people on board, 99.7% of all those on board were saved? That's because of the safety lessons that Titanic taught. The accident itself is perhaps a, an evocation of what happens when those safety lessons are forgotten. So Titanic is going to live on well past its 100th anniversary, and we have one, one little uh, thing to do, and that is to officially bring, go ahead, Jack, to officially bring Titanic to New York. This is Titanic docking at Pier 59 with the help of Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs>